Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Senior Advisor of The Lincoln Project, co-host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and all-around incredible person, Tara Setmeyer. Tara, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Reed. Also on board today is my fellow Lincoln Project co-founder, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, welcome back. Hey, man. Good to be with you guys. So, guys, today I want to talk about what's going on in Virginia, Steve Bannon and Madison Cawthorn and their shock troops and holy wars, and the latest with Facebook. But first, the breakdown is back. After a hiatus, I know many of the, our rabid fans were excited to hear that Rick and Tara would be back on the airwaves Tuesday and Thursday evenings. So, Tara, tell us a little bit about what we can expect this season. Well, it's always fun when Rick and I are together and we have an opportunity to interact with our Lincoln Project brethren and our supporters. And there's really no shortage of things to discuss. In our debut show back, you know, I was joking with Rick that, oh, there's just been a couple of things happening in the news since we've been gone. And, you know, we're supposed to be in an off year, but it's not an off year. There's no such thing anymore. You know, things are really ratcheting up. And it's, I think, one of the advantages that we have as an organization is that we recognize that. And we have really kept going and we are continuing to put out solid content to keep people informed about what the hell's going on. Because there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in Trump world. There's a lot going on with Republicans. There's a lot going on even with the Democrats heading into midterms. So on the breakdown, we're going to make sure that we continue to inform. I think it's most important that our supporters out there understand what's going on, why it matters and what they can do going into the midterms and beyond to help protect our democracy. And Rick, your first show back last week, you had old friend of ours, Matthew Dowd, who has announced his bid for lieutenant governor of Texas. So what do you see for folks like Matthew as the breakdown continues? Do you think we can have more folks like him coming to the fore with their expertise? I mean, I think that's one of the things you guys have done so well is really provide a platform and you know hundreds of thousands of new viewers eyeballs and ears for folks who really need to be known i think in this time as tara described it we've been very privileged in the first couple seasons we've done of the breakdown and our other shows we're speaking and of course lunch with lincoln to have some guests that have tremendous insights into the moment we're really living in right now and not just people who are you know, dial a pundit where it's, you know, it's sort of this formalized kabuki dance. Everyone comes on and they say there are 30 seconds of either funny or outraged commentary and then poof, it disappears. We have some really tremendous conversations with folks who come, again, to talk about the moment we're really in and not the moment we want to imagine that we're in because we pride ourselves on being realistic about the dangers we face as a country and about the opportunities we have as a country. There's a real sense that the kind of work we've done on this podcast and on LPTV among our donors, our followers, our friends, and our enemies, that it's making a difference. And that's why it's so important that we keep the show going and the assistance and the donations of folks that help us put this together and the team behind it is just tremendous. And so we're really excited about this season. It's going to be great. We're going to keep having provocative and smart people on, and we're going to have, again, real conversations with them and not just the normal 30 seconds of flaming glory generic TV hits. Well, and I would say this is that the thing that I think, you know, as Stuart likes to say, we don't have a party, we don't have a candidate, we don't have anything to offer to people in Congress, right? So the folks that come on don't have to hew to those left or right inside the beltway talking points. They come with their own perspective 
on the fight at hand. And I think also two more things, Tara, that you and Rick have done is one, everybody you have on is just absolutely top notch, right? They are the best at whatever it is they do. And secondly, I think because of the dynamic between you and Rick, you all can take very serious subject, which is saving the Republic, and make it worth watching for 45 to 60 minutes, which I think is an extremely rare thing, Rick. I think we've been very lucky, not only because Tara and I are old friends, and we have a great personal rapport and chemistry here that's really genuine, but it is also one of those things where we live in a new media environment now. And the old way that media companies were structured and the old way that super PACs were structured and the old way that political advocacy was done has changed fundamentally. And that's one thing a lot of our critics just do not understand. They're like, well, why didn't you go and pour 5,000 gross rating points in six weeks into blah, blah, blah? Well, because it doesn't work. So we do things to reach voters and to reach audiences and to talk to people and to educate and inform and motivate and excite folks with the content the Lincoln Project is able to produce almost uniquely in this moment in our country. And we're really proud of it. And I'm just so delighted we're back on the air again with this. We need to be out there talking to people because the mission is that important. The 2022 election is that important. Most Washington super PACs, they're like, well, I guess in the springtime, we'll start to dust off the machine and see what we're going to do. And then by August or Labor Day, we'll get in the fight. Bullshit. We're in the fight today for a reason, because the bad guys have been in the fight since January 6th. They're going to keep pushing and nudging and scooching and driving forward and engaging in a whole variety of bad acts. And we're going to have to push back on it. And a lot of our allies and our friends really would like the world to operate the way it used to operate, where there was a sort of genial, friendly, okay, well, we'll get to the fight when we get to the fight. No, the fight is never ending now. We have to contend with the bad guys 24-7, and they're not going to go away or stop fighting. You may not be interested in the 2022 election, but it is interested in you. So, you know, as a good segue to talking about a place with overheated media markets, let's talk about what's going on in Virginia right now. Now, I know I grew up in Northern Virginia. Rick, I'm sure you spent time there. Tara, I believe you live there now. I'm a former Northern Virginia resident of Alexandria. I am a current Northern Virginia resident and have been for many years. So, you know, Election Day is just about a month away. It's November 2nd. And last week, the Cook Political Report moved the race between former Governor Terry McAuliffe and Republican nominee Glenn Youngkin from a lean Democrat race to a toss-up. And um, this got many of our friends and allies uh, into an absolute panic uh, because obviously so much of this race is breaking down in the D.C. media market. So many people who sort of live and breathe politics for a living live in Northern Virginia. Um, and so, Tara, as you sit there in Northern Virginia, what's it look like from the front row? Well, I can tell you that any evening that I decide to watch network television, which is usually for Jeopardy at 730. <laughs> yes, we're a Jeopardy household. The oversaturation of ads between McAuliffe, the battling back and forth, the competing ads between McAuliffe and Yonkin, it's heated up now. I mean, it's October and every single commercial break, there's at least one or two ads from both of them. So it's clear that the Democrats have awakened. We're hearing now that like Priorities USA and a couple of the other Democratic PACs are like, oh, maybe we should actually pour some money into this now. Yeah. Like, what did you think was going to happen? Glenn Youngkin is worth $440 million. 
Well, and McAuliffe is no slouch financially either. No, but he's not worth $440 million and he doesn't have the same amount of personal wealth to dip into, to put into the race the way Youngkin does. And this is something that I think we've warned our Democratic friends not to, to Rick's point, you cannot operate the way you used to in the before times. These are bad actors. And, you know, as much as Glenn Youngkin tries to portray himself as a Mitt Romney type businessman moderate here in Northern Virginia, we already know that he's a different person in other parts of more rural Virginia. That's MAGA country. And I'm glad to see that we at the Lincoln Project have gotten involved in this race now to point that out because people need to know that this is a guy that doesn't necessarily have the principles that we should be expecting of people who are elected to our state and local offices because we're seeing every day the importance of state and local races, particularly when it comes to administering our elections you know, making policy concerning vaccines and masking, right, in the era of COVID. I think a lot of folks are waking up to how state and local government actually impacts their lives every day. So Virginia is a bellwether state. You know, it used to be reliably Republican back in the day, but then about mm, 10 years or so ago, 15 years, it has really turned the corner. So, you know, the state went 10 points for Biden last time. And now to have this governor's race be a toss-up, they need to wake up and they're going to have to tie Yunkin to Trump and make people realize that don't fall for the okie doke here. What he's promising here in Northern Virginia is not really who he is. And Trump is still lingering there and what they want to do, particularly in the state legislature. Rick, let me ask you this. To Tara's point, he won the Republican primary on the back of his own money and on being more Trumpy. He didn't win it by a lot, right? I think it was a 54 or 46 race over Pete Snyder. So to Tara's point, like when he gets south of Loudoun County or Fairfax, he's got to be all in on Trumpism. I mean, several people have gotten the guy on tape saying, you know, people asking about abortion. He says, look, I have to be moderate on abortion because I have to keep hold of the independence in northern Virginia. But as soon as I get to office, you know, we'll do everything we can. I mean, sometimes we should believe people when they say things, right? Exactly. And this is the moment where a person like Donald Trump's influence on the Republican Party has got to be acknowledged. It's got to be understood. And it's so profoundly dangerous for these political characters who try to run in purple and blue leaning states. And they're going to try to play the game on both sides of the equation. And, you know, neither side will tolerate that outcome. The MAGAs will not tolerate deviation from Trump. The other day, Glenn Youngkin looked so damn nervous. I thought he was going to shit out a raccoon when he was asked about Trump being elected, and he's like, oh, Biden's our president for now. The guy is eminently gettable if Terry and other outside groups like LP go after the fact that there's nothing voters in this country. There's nothing they hate more than being bullshitted by a guy like this. He's wealthy. He's trying to play it up both sides. He's apparently believes that he's running in 1994 and not 2021. Like, oh, what is this internet? No one would ever know what I've said in Charlottesville versus Northern Virginia. And unfortunately for him, they do. And so when he's in Roanoke talking about ending vaccine mandates and stuff, he's playing to the Trump crowd. And when he gets to Northern Virginia, he's all in on vaccines. Well, and Tara, he's probably watching pretty closely. And it seems to have worked so far, which is why we'll come in and do what we're going to do. But he probably, as everyone does, recognizes that in 2017, when Ed Gillespie, old friend of many of ours, ran for governor down there, you know, at the end, he took a hard right turn into Trumpism 
with, you know, MS-13 and kneeling and all this other stuff. And he got blown out. Yep. And that's not who Ed Gillespie really is, by the way. Like, it was a shame to see him turn into that. He's another one of the long list of sellouts that decided to jump on the Trump train and put on the MAGA hat. And it didn't work for him because it really wasn't who he was. But that was the choice he made and he lost and he should have. Yeah. You know, you end up in a situation where you get these incentives to dip your toe into the pool of crazy and you keep doing it because you're trapped once you do it. And so Glenn Youngkin in Virginia is trapped. He's going to be pressed on both sides behaviorally in the coming days and weeks, and it's not going to be easy to stay out of it. You know, this isn't solved by just television advertising, and it's not solved just by trying to shame him or laugh at it. It's going to be a matter of doing the kind of things to go after that very narrow slice of voters that he's trying to get. He's after our ban in line voters. Because for the last three election cycles, the voters we profile and are best at addressing that three to eight percent, those voters, a lot of them live in Northern Virginia, in Loudoun and Fairfax. Right. And to your point, Rick, the polling shows that the independents that live in this part of the state, he has a lot more support with them than McAuliffe does, because those people who were turned off by Donald Trump and would walk over broken glass to vote against any Republican that resembled Trump during those days. Those folks, without Trump being on the ballot, are a little more gettable. They're more susceptible to the traditional Republican, you know, we're going to cut taxes and the softer Republican message, establishment message that Youngkin is pushing big time up here in Northern Virginia. But the Republican Party of Virginia is batshit crazy. And they have been for several election cycles now. Let's not forget Corey Stewart. Remember that guy? He was one of the hardcore Trumpers really before it became in vogue in the Republican Party to be a Trump-like candidate and almost like one. And we have other candidates here in Virginia that are using anti-Semitic tropes to go after Democrats. You mean when they put a Jewish candidate in front of a pile of gold coins when he's rubbing his hands together? Right. With a profile of enhanced facial features. Yes. That's subtle. It's very subtle. And I would say this is that I was on the phone earlier today with a friend of ours who is still ostensibly a Republican. And like, you're really going to go after Yunkin? I mean, he seems OK. And I said, you know, Rick, you gave me this line last fall, which is Yunkin's the kind of guy who puts Trumpism through the car wash, makes it just shiny enough for those independent voters that Tara's talking about to feel OK about it, that it's not that bad. You know, in northern Virginia, I guarantee you when Glenn Yunkin and his wife and kids have people over for barbecues or catered dinner parties or whatever, right? I guarantee you, he said, look, guys, I don't want to have anything to do with these people when he's talking about the MAGA folks. I'm not going to do any of this stuff when I get to office, but like they're crazy guys and I've got to do this in order to win. But here's what we also know, Rick. What have we seen from the media and other Republicans who are Yunkin like which is as soon as they get into office, they almost singularly cave to the crazy right wing. They never stand up for themselves. That's very true. And, you know, in the book On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder, and I encourage folks to read that. It's very short. It's like 20 axioms about how you fall into tyranny. And there's a part in there where he talks about anticipatory obedience. And this is exactly what we saw happen in Nazi Germany, where folks thought, well, 
well, you know. How bad could it Hitler's be? Hitler's not so bad. What could go wrong? He fixed the roads. Right. He's going to build bridges for us and, you know, trains will run on time. I mean, they wrote op-eds in the papers about, ah, he's not really going to do all that other crazy stuff. That's just, you know, that's just the rhetoric. And we saw what happened. And once people like that, when demagogues see there's a certain amount of obedience that the electorate is capable of, that spells bad news for their aspirations. And the same, I think, applies to elected officials who will run on walking that tightrope. And people like a Glenn Youngkin who don't have the spine to stand up for what's right. I mean, if you have to actually stammer and stumble over a question about Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States. That means you are susceptible to being obedient to your master. And right now, that master is Trumpism. And that is such an existential threat to all of us, not just at a national level, but at a state and local level. And Republicans are getting better and better at organizing around this. And those people are more motivated. So Democrats have an enthusiasm gap problem that they've got to fix because otherwise they're going to wake up in 2022 with a landslide victory for Republicans and go, how the hell did we allow this to happen? On that note, you know, let's turn to those radicals who are inciting violence, inciting the overthrow of the government or the constitutional republic that we have. So I want to talk about this Steve Bannon clip. And then, Tara, I also want to talk about Madison Cawthorn. So last week, Steve Bannon was invited to the Capitol Hill Club, which, guys, is right next to the Republican National Committee headquarters. It's where all the Republicans do their My old lobbying, stomping grounds. their business. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been going there eating cheeseburgers since I was literally like six years old. Right? Right. It's, it, <laughs> most of what happens is literally in the basement. Yes. And so he was invited by this group called the Association of Republican Presidential Appointees, which basically are these, you know, shock troops, as Bannon called them, that would go into government and deconstruct the administrative state. Rob, let's go ahead and listen to his clip. The opposition, particularly the opposition elite and all their soy boys and everything in Silicon Valley media, it's not a big part of the population. And they understand that. They understand it. The thing they fear is the righteous indignation of the working class in this country. And now they're seeing it. And that's why they're in meltdown. The story, I gave this talk to these appointees, and here's what I said. We're winning big in 2022. We're going to win big in 2024. We need to get ready now. Right? We control this country. we got to start acting like it. And one way we're going to act like it, we're not going to have 4,000 ready to go. We're going to have 20,000 ready to go, and we're going to pick the 4,000 best and the most ready in every single department. And that's when we really start to deconstruct the administrative state. So a couple of things. One is, as we've talked about before, Steve Bannon is a self-avowed Leninist. He believes that you must deconstruct the administrative state, burn it to the ground, and rebuild it in whatever dystopian vision he has. But also, He's not only a Leninist now, he's also a Marxist, which is talking about the proletarian <laughs> rising up and throwing off the shackles. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You're right. <laughs> you know, but also listen to what he said. We have to prepare now. 2022, 2024, we have to be doing these things now. Tara, why is it that our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle can't see the threat for what it is, and maybe not even just the Democrats, but individual Americans. What is it? Are we just Pollyannas? Are we Cassandras? What is it that we see? And when we hear these things that so many alarm bells go off, and what do we as an organization and as individuals need to be doing to make it clearer to folks what's happening? I don't know why it's so hard for others to see what we see, you know, the immediacy of this threat. 
maybe it's because they're in denial. It's not as sexy as arguing over some of the culture war trigger words and owning the libs. And then, you know, our progressive friends want the government to come in and free college and free childcare and all those things that sound great in political ads. But this is a much bigger threat. And we're not going to stop yelling it from the rooftops because we have to. And I think we have been successful in the last couple of years in waking people up, shaking them out of their political apathy because they've seen what has taken place under the Trump administration. And I know Rick and I have said this many times that we cannot normalize what happened during those four years. That's why I have no patience for some of these Trump enablers that are writing books and trying to go on these tours to rehabilitate their reputations. Alyssa. And yeah, I, they, like I have no tolerance for them because it's like you were there until it wasn't convenient for you anymore. Meanwhile, now you want to come out and warn everyone how dangerous it was after the damage that you helped inflict? I don't want to hear it. Well, Rick, you just mentioned that. I mean, this morning, as we're recording The View on ABC, had Alyssa Farah as a co-host, a special co-host. She is a woman who I think was deputy communications director, deputy press secretary or something under Trump, and is now being given this platform to talk about how she was called to serve. As Tara said, these people sat in the rooms as the banality of evil washed over the country and thought it was fine. And she didn't leave the White House until January 6th when she realized it was unlikely for her to get a gig either as a consultant or on Fox News or whatever it is. Like, what is with the both sidesism? I mean, maybe I'm just tilting at windmills here, but I'm getting real impatient with it. There was a guy, in the, an editor from Chicago Tribune, I believe last week, who was talking about for years, I put a Republican quote and a Democrat quote in each story because I figured they were morally equivalent and I just had to do it. Well, I think there's this idea, probably with the people that produce The View, well, a lot of our audience are pretty Trumpy. I mean, well, guess what? There's a degree to which you get to make moral decisions in your corporate life. And if you want to have somebody on who helped spread the big lie about COVID, have Alyssa on all the time. Great. If you want to have somebody on who was part of the unbelievable torrent of lies and bullshit from that administration, she's your girl. Do it. Have fun. Storm the castle. But don't expect not to be called out on it. But that both sidesism and that there's something good in both left and right, it's not always the same. It's just not. That's true. And I think we used to think that because there were people who were involved in good faith dissent on both sides. So you had a certain amount of friendly banter or healthy debate when you disagreed on policy or things like that. But I think Reed said this earlier. These are just bad people. They are literally really bad people. Steve Bannon is a horrible, awful human being who is an evil genius that we need to be very, very aware of and need to make sure that he doesn't have the same level of influence that he did before in mobilizing people into something like January 6th. Steve Bannon's hands were all over the insurrection. He had been building that up for months with his platform. And, you know, not for nothing, but you have to love Twitter because those tweets don't go away. Jennifer Cohn, who we had on the breakdown a couple months ago, she brought up that on January 4th, that Steve Bannon was preparing a bunch of religious zealots for a holy war, because a lot of the language that he uses resembles that, because he knows that that draws people in. Whether he believes it or not, I think he gets off on the power. 
He literally called it a momentous battle between children of light and children of darkness. And he was talking to some religious leader on the radical right side of it, where he said, quote, you have to be very confident that God desires a Trump victory in order to defeat the forces of evil inherent in the globalist's great reset. What would you say to convince the naysayers who are ambivalent to the idea that this is a momentous battle between the children of light and the children of darkness? He said this two days before January 6th. Let me tell you something. If I were president, and I know that's a nightmare scenario for all parties concerned, <laughs> Steve Bannon would have a wall, a cigarette, and a blindfold. This is a guy who's trying to overthrow our government. Let's not fool ourselves. He was involved. Ali Alexander was involved. Roger Stone was involved. Alex Jones was involved. And there were a whole bunch of these other mid-tier people that you never know about or hear about that were talking to the White House. We know from the Eastman memo that this was an active conspiracy that spanned not only the Bannon right-wing ecosphere, but also the White House itself and the White House legal teams. There's a conspiracy here. These people were actively engaged in it. And I say this a lot. I'm going to keep repeating it until people get the idea. If you do not punish everyone involved in a coup, it was just a training exercise. You've got to hit these fucking people in the face. You've got to put them in jail. So speaking of people who metaphorically deserve a hit in the face. So Madison Cawthorn, Tara, put out this ad on Sunday night, basically calling for a holy war also. And, and I'll just quote briefest from it. It says, quote, Look at David, look at Daniel, look at Esther, look at all the people who influenced the government of their day to uphold Christian principles. This is Old Testament, FYI, so Jesus wasn't around yet. And he said that, quote, a spiritual battle is happening on Capitol Hill. It is time, quote, for the American Christian church to come out of the shadows. Like, this is like, okay, so no, it's white Christian ethno-nationalism being led by a moron from Western North Carolina, a psychotic from Northwest Georgia. A drunk in his townhouse on Capitol Hill and, you know, the orange albatross down at Mar-a-Lago. Like, these are the people these folks are following. Like, I don't know what the hell is going on. You know, it's important to recognize that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and Andy Biggs and the rest of the mutant parade, they are now the actual Republican Party. It is not Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy still wears the right suits and goes into the right meetings and shakes hands and says, we're going to be limited government, this and that. It's bullshit. These people are who the Republicans are now. They are the party that believes in nothing else except power and owning the libs. And so because of that, we are going to see more and more of this. This insanity will intensify. It will get more dangerous and more violent and more explicit unless we take steps in this country to punish the people who were engaged in an illegal attempt to overthrow the United States government. And to be honest, our friend Malcolm Nance, in response to that Madison Cawthorn clip, he said, this is literally calling for Christian jihad. And he's right. Until people start framing this unequivocally for what it is and not be afraid of calling it out for what it is, they will continue to normalize it within the Republican Party as just standing up and being a patriot. They have perverted this idea of patriotism. We saw what happens when you don't push back. You get a January 6th insurrection. Well, Rick, let me ask you this. Why is it so hard in this time when people want unvarnished truth, when, you know, there's any number of ways to communicate with people that even now people don't want to really name the things they see? Why is it that everybody's trying to explain it away so that they don't have to accept what it is they're facing? 
Yeah, it's the classic problem of normalcy bias where people say to themselves, look, if I just pretend it's normal, it will be normal. We'll fake it till we make it. But if we do that, there's a sort of like Gresham's law of shitty people in our politics right now. And the worst people drive out the best. And you will end up with more and more Steve Bannons and Madison Cawthorns unless we fight back. And the left and the progressives and the liberals and the Democrats, you know, these elements of the demonology of the right. The great tell of anything from the right is the imputation that on the left side of the spectrum, there's this fiendish master plan and these shadowy controllers and this long-running, long-standing desire to turn America into a communist gulag. And if the liberals and the globalists and the socialists were so devious and so brilliant and so all-powerful, well, they're doing a pretty crappy job of taking over America and peeling us away from capitalist populism because <laughs> the bad guys, they understand how to play against those tropes and those imaginary demons. Um, and it's just, you know, people in the middle and on the left, they desperately want it to go away and not be real. It's like being told, hey, that, that spot on your MRI, dude, it's not good. It's cancer. You got to treat it. You know, nobody wants to hear that. They'd rather hear, like, get back to me next week when the results are at. And unfortunately, in this case, the results are going to come in in 22 unless the Democrats get their shit together and build their team out correctly. And those results will be catastrophic for this country. All right. So, guys, in our remaining few minutes, I want to bring up one more thing. Facebook specifically that has been such a sewer of, you know, the way that this filth and muck gets transported back and forth across the country. And so on Sunday night. Francis Haugen, a whistleblower from Facebook, basically told us again, everything was as bad as we thought it was over there. And a few things that she revealed was that Facebook's algorithm intentionally shows users things that make them angry, that political parties in Europe ran negative ads because it was the only way that they could break through the algorithm on Facebook, and that Facebook routinely only identifies about three to 5% of the hate and misinformation on the platform. Now, as we speak, Facebook has had a massive, I don't know, hemorrhage or something that's happened. The Facebook main page, Instagram and WhatsApp are currently down, which is the afternoon of Monday, October 4th. But I mean, assuming that they get back up sometime soon, do we think that now is the time when right, left regulators, state, federal will finally say enough Zuckerberg, your Dr. Evil routine has come to an end? I wish, but you know what? Facebook employs something like 70 lobbyists in D.C., and I guarantee you they range from rah-rah MAGA lunatics to people who, you know, have AOC on speed dial. I mean, tomorrow Facebook could open up a bunch of groups like Baby Cannibalism is Delicious, and they would say, we can't control the platform. We're just, like, we're just a publisher. And this will not end well until society decides that Facebook is poison. It will not end well because they have the ability to buy the regulations they want. Which is, you know, an argument that the left has made about big money and big tech. And I think there's some strange bedfellows on the big tech issue, right? I mean, since when did Republicans all of a sudden become these technocrats that are complaining about free enterprise of big business? But it's funny because they're going after Facebook and Twitter because they banned Trump and conspiracy theorists and, you know, took some effort to get rid of some of these bad actors. But in the meantime, they've also benefited greatly from the platforms perpetuating this ilk. 
And we've seen this. I mean, I've mentioned before that I narrated a documentary called Dismantling Democracy, where you can watch it on Prime. And it was Emmy nominated. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) We didn't win, but I appreciate the honor of being nominated. And in that documentary, we talk about the influence of social media platforms and the algorithms and how even Google, you know, you can put in Google search results and it will, the algorithms recognize what you're more susceptible to as far as information. There'll be a bias in even search results you put in because so much of our personal information is out there that they can micro target you down to what your Google results are going to be based on your political habits. And it's scary because we really don't have control over protecting our personal information anymore. That ship has sailed, unfortunately, no matter how much we try. Information and personal information, that is the new currency. And Facebook and Twitter and these social platforms, they know how to monetize it. They know how to politicize it and they know how to manipulate it. And we're seeing that. And I don't know what the answer is going to be until are we going to regulate it? Is there an appetite for regulating it? I don't know. I mean, I think when the bottom line starts to be impacted, then that's really the only time big business changes. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, we shall. We shall. And, you know, I haven't been on Facebook in I don't know how many years, so this does not bother me in the slightest. All right. Before we get out of here, Tara, where can we find you online and where can our listeners find The Breakdown? I am the only Tara Setmayer, so that makes it easy. I'm at Tara Setmayer on Twitter, at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram. And you can find The Breakdown on the Lincoln Project Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Come check us out. Come hang out with us. All right. And Rick, how about you? Where can we find you online? I'm at the Rick Wilson on Twitter and the Rick Wilson on Instagram. All right. And as always, folks, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. I want to say thanks again to Rick and Tara and to everyone listening. We will see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.